to The Bible and the English Major. I'm Marin, your host. In each episode of this podcast, we analyze stories from Scripture the way an English major would, unpacking the parts to gain a better understanding of the whole. I keep it interesting because I'd love to start a conversation. After all, the best part of any good story is talking about it with friends. this podcast, please follow it wherever you're listening today and find me on social media. I love to hear from listeners. Links are in the show notes. Hey team, happy new year. I don't know about you, but 2022 went out with a whimper between sickness, job responsibilities, and technical difficulties. We had trouble cranking out podcasts. But we are back, and I'm so excited because I have missed the work that I do, and I have missed getting to talk with you. So today is guest day. I am so excited to welcome my friend and pastora Inez Velasquez McBride from The Church We Hope For to speak with me about our latest series. She does a great job of pointing out the ethics of who gets centered in these stories by Luke and who gets centered in these stories by the actions of Jesus, and who Jesus himself centers in the parable of the Samaritan. Let's dive right in. Hi, Inez. Thank you for being here. Hola, Marin. Thank you for inviting me here. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Listeners, if you were here for our first season, you may remember my first guest, Bobby Harrison. He shared about his experiences pastoring and being in friendship for a long time with a woman named Inez. And here she is today. Inez is co-lead pastora at the church we hope for, the church that my family's been going to for a while now. And it has been such a joy for all of us to be there and to be in a space where everyone is so clearly and intentionally welcome Hmm. to be their full Hmm. selves. Inez, thank you so much for leading in that space and for taking time to be here today with me. It is such an honor, truly. I'm excited to see how you're looking at these stories. It's very clever, very intriguing to me, very uh, nerdy. Like, I like to be nerdy. (laughs) (laughs) I am so excited. And just to introduce a little bit about myself, I am co-lead pastor at the church we hope for. I am a mom. I am a wife for 18 years now. I have a son who plays soccer with your son. Mm -hmm. My son, Nash, is 13 years old. I am an immigrant. I am from Nicaragua. I uh, was raised there up until I came uh, to the U.S. to go to college. I went to seminary just six years ago, later in my life, and I've been a pastor for 20 years, an ordained pastor. I got my MDiv from Fuller Seminary in 2019. I've been a chaplain in that seminary, and so I love this conversation with you because my training has prepared me for a conversation like this, and I just love how you're so cleverly connecting your English literary criticism background with something that I love a lot to do, which is biblical hermeneutics, but I don't usually use those words. (laughs) I I just preach, but I'm doing that work of storytelling. I should tell you, I don't know that I've ever told you that my major in college was Latin American literature. So see, this is why you and I speak the same language. (laughs) Maybe not the same heart language. I'm Spanish, you're English. But my mind is intrigued by 
your literary background and how you're bringing it into conversation with the text. And so, so it is with Latin American literature. So when we were texting about what we wanted to talk about today, you mentioned the ethics of who gets centered in the story. One of the questions that we ask when we come before a text, when we're analyzing, when we're exegeting, we always look at the world behind the text, right. the sociocultural context, what's happening at the time, who is the audience, who is it being written to. Then we look at the world in the text, which you have done so well, looking into the Greek and the original languages to try to better understand what is that word? Mm -hmm. What does it mean? How has it been used? What's the semantic range? Like all these things that we right. learn and that I love to nerd out in seminary, but also I bring that into my sermons and it's important in storytelling. And then you have the world in front of the text. So you're using your literary criticism and who you are and your social location, the world in front of the text. Mm -hmm. That's what I bring into the story as well, into the analysis of these stories. I bring my body, which is a brown immigrant, mujer, woman, and my brown body is always asking, what are the ethical implications of the verbs of Jesus? It is not only the words that he says, but what kind of words, like yeah. the verbs. What are his actions saying? When we study the Gospels, we are all familiar with the red letter Bible. In English or in Spanish, you will find a Gideon's Bible, right? <laughs> that will have the red letters. <laughs> but what about the verbs? And what does it say about Jesus? What are the borders that he is crossing? What mm -hmm. are the barriers that he is tearing down, not only with his words, but more importantly, with the verbs? I was thinking about Mary and Martha. The world before this text is also an interpretation. So we're hearing these stories about women. Mm -hmm. And we know that every translation is an interpretation. But whoever tells the story is already interpreting it for us. Right. So because the Bible, unfortunately, is very androcentric, it is male-centered, mm -hmm. who is telling the story about women is just as important as that there are women right. in the story. If it's Luke, it might be Luke. It could be somebody else. Mm -hmm. Let's assume it's Luke <laughs> telling the story of Mary and Martha. Well, it's still a man telling the story about Mary. It's still a man telling us the story about Martha. Mm -hmm. And so we become a character that joins also the story. And we're listening going, wait, 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 wait. Did Mary really say that? Or what could have Martha felt in that moment? And so we mm -hmm. become a character too. The, the story invites us to become a character and there's an ethic behind what is Jesus doing when he is talking to women? What is Jesus doing when he is inviting women to follow him? And particularly with Mary and Martha, who are they in the story? In the Gospel of Luke, it's very important to me because Luke is one of the most gender equitable gospel writers of mm. the four gospels. I love Luke. If I had another child, I would name him Luke. <laughs> and if it was a boy, I would name him Luke because... Luke has the, the most stories about women than the other Gospels, right. 22. 22 stories about women. Eight of those are particular only to Luke. Mm -hmm. There's an ethics and behind that. What was his reasoning? What was his motivation? And where did he get those stories? Because eight of those don't come from Mark, right. which is supposedly where the other Gospel writers were getting their source. It right. is a main source. 
So Dr. Carla Ricci is a, an Italian theologian who wrote a dissertation on the silence of women mm. in the Gospels. She's analyzing the silence and studying the presence of women because there's an ethic behind the presence of women. Their silence is unethical. Mm-hmm. Who tells their stories? They could be biased, you know? Sure. Whether they get counted and how many people were fed, you right. know, it's like 5,000 men without counting women and children. So we need a more gender-inclusive counting of the crowds that Jesus felt. And so when we look at women, we have to ask questions about ethics. Why her? Why here? Mm-hmm. Why in this gospel? How does she relate to the other women of the gospel? So Luke is most gender-inclusive. It includes eight stories that are not found in any other gospels. And Dr. Carlo Ricci believes, and other scholars believe, that he probably had another source, another source huh. that was women, a tradition of women who held the stories of Jesus from Galilee to resurrection that didn't get written down. And she thinks that he might have interviewed those women. That's an ethical That's question. That's pretty cool. It is fantastic. I call it the women, the W source or the M is source that. for mujeres in Spanish. So we have Q source <laughs> right, as, an, exactly. as a source in yeah. biblical history. Well, I'm calling them the women. Well, the, 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 the W, word, right? Exactly. Or like that. So, <laughs> exactly. Yes. I think we need a Spanish so, word. So exactly, we need the M for mujeres, uh-huh. the M source of those women who were right there. That's an ethical question. So women were silenced. They suffered a lot of denials. And so when you find a woman, <gasps> you got to pay attention in the gospel because yeah. for her to even get ink on that page. For her presence to even be written about, I, I remember when you were talking about the bleeding woman, she's unnamed. The unnamed woman, but not unnamed or, or known to God. Right. But then when we get named ones, we really have to pay attention. And that's an ethical question. It was an ethical choice for the gospel writer to write down Mary's name, Martha's name, right. and their interactions with Jesus. Luke is saying, pay attention right here. And you have to stop. And slow down and look at the author's intent. Why this? Why here? Women in the time of Jesus, in the time of Palestine, suffered three denials. Denial of knowledge. They did not have access to to education, perhaps. Or some may not have known how to write or read. Denial of presence, because they often were not counted in these biblical accounts from beginning, from Genesis to Revelation. And the third denial was also the denial of witness. Their words were not counted in court. Right. Jesus is having to overcompensate to include them in the story. Mm-hmm. But you have to turn over stones to find that they're being folded yeah. into the story. And it has to be intentional. Jesus knows that it has to be intentional. Luke knows that he had to go find the tradition of women who knew the stories of Jesus. Those who were near and close. Otherwise... The 12 male disciples take center stage. Right. But in the Lucan account and the other synoptic gospels, there is a tradition, and I like to preach about this, and I want to mention it here as well. We did not only have 12 male disciples. We had nine consistent female disciples that followed Jesus. And I say 10 because there's, there's a 10th one that was unnamed and a bunch of other ones that were unnamed. Mm. So there could have been more, more females than men that were following with Jesus. And so, but there's nine named. Can you name some of them? Are Absolutely. They, <laughs> they are in my brain because we got to know their names. There's five Marias. That's how I get away with like not knowing all of them. There's five Marias. Okay, Marin. But it's like Mary, it. <laughs> Mary, the mother of Jesus, I believe was the first disciple. Yeah. 
For you to be a disciple of Jesus in the Gospels, it means that you believed in the identity and in the authority of Jesus. The women that believed in the identity and the authority of Jesus were the five Marias beginning with his mother. I believe, I truly believe in my personal opinion, she was the first disciple. You know, and she knew who she, he was she knew going who to be exactly. But before, and then she yeah. also got to disciple, you know, Jesus, which is fascinating to uh, me. Yeah. And then you have Maria Magdalena, who was the the head of the posse of the female posse. Mm-hmm. She is an equivalent to Peter. Yeah, absolutely. She is an equi- She's fiery. Yeah. She is feisty. And in the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, and in a tradition that actually follows her and worships her, which we don't have that in our in our Bibles. There is a tradition in the Gospel of Mary Magdalene where you see a lot of uh, rivalry between Peter and Maria Magdalena. Ah. That's the harvest of the patriarchy. This is why she has been written out of many of the stories. But she's an art everywhere. And so we have to excavate Mm -hmm. her. So she's the leader of that posse. And then there are three other Marias. And then there is Juana, Susana, and Salome. So Joanna, Susana, and Salome. That's the context which where you sit Mary and Martha, who are mm-hmm. also disciples of Jesus. Those women were called out from Galilee in Luke 8. And so that's yes. where Mary and Martha fit in the rest of the right. story. So we can't look at the story as, you know, as a standalone story. You have to see where do these women fit with the other disciples, mm-hmm. with the other female disciples is what I mean. Where do they fit with the male disciples? And then the larger narrative is where do they fit in the larger narrative of, of women In early Palestine, most of the female disciples of Jesus came from Galilee. And the Galilean ethnic identity of Jesus is very important because of all the identities, they were the most marginalized. Mm -hmm. It was a very small town, a very socioeconomically depressed town. And so I often wonder, why didn't Jesus call the women just like he called the men? Hmm. Maybe he did, but we don't have a record of that. But sometimes I think as I've read more and more that Jesus didn't need to call the women. He, they heard they the calling. They just showed up. They're like, what? Leave everything follow you? What else will, do we have to leave? We're already at the bottom huh. of the pecking order. There's nothing to lose. But never have I met a man that talks to me like I'm an equal. I, mm. I bet they said that. Mm. Never have I had a man love me with respect and not hypersexualize me or not hyper-romanticize me. Never have I had a man invite me into something bigger than myself and made me feel like part of something bigger. And so I believe that the women invited themselves into the story, but Mm -hmm. also they got written out of the story. And so we become women that, like Will Gaffney says, which I love that you were quoting her in one of your articles. I love Will Gaffney because she encourages women, and especially women of color, to reread the stories of women. Mm by women and for women, and to read against the common, normative, androcentric, male-centered, you know, right. reading. That is an act of also fan fiction, I believe. Oh, yeah, <laughs> the midrash. I, midrash, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so yeah. we have to read again and again and ask better questions. So let's talk a little bit more about Mary and Martha then. I feel like out of all the stories about women, Mary and Martha for me, has been altered over time. Mm-hmm. I started my understanding of Mary and Martha against Martha. Mm-hmm. I was like, Martha, you are annoying. You are bossy. I don't like you. Leave Mary alone. She's just listening to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I'm a little ashamed to say that now because yeah. I don't feel that way anymore. Right. And I wonder, where did I get that? Was I taught that somewhere? 
I don't remember that. Was that me just reading fairly literally? Or is that just me being too immature in my own life to realize sometimes you really need some Marthas? I didn't need to be Martha when I was a kid because my mom was being Martha. And reading and studying this last few weeks, it's been so cool for me to realize, okay, she was legitimately a disciple. The act of welcoming Jesus into her home made her a disciple. Yeah. It connected her with the others who welcomed Jesus. So I've evolved on my feelings about Martha. Did you have similar (laughs) bias against Martha? Definitely. I have had a bias. First of all, we should interrogate why we ever thought that Bossy was bad. You know, so that's a cultural question to ask that gets carried throughout the ages from Mary and Martha's time to our time. Why is being bossy bad? And who gets called bossy? And it's a sign of confidence and leadership. leadership. (laughs) (laughs) We did not plan that. See how we said it. (laughs) And the second thing behind that word bossy, I come from a very machista culture where women who took charge could be seen as wanting to control men rather than seeing that somebody needed to take charge and to get shit done. The people that execute the vision get looked down upon because they're having to quickly say, we need to get all of it done. Right. So that's a word that ought to get analyzed. And as it pertains to women, when I was listening to your podcast, I found that my body was resisting the story because of the cultural connotations that have been assigned to Martha Mm -hmm. as you were calling it, she was the villain, you know, of right. the story. Yeah. But then I, my heart softened with compassion when I was trying to center Jesus in the story and remember, you know, I don't believe that Jesus was ever saying, choose this or that. Mm-hmm. It's been preached that way. It sure has. It's been interpreted that way. Mm-hmm. And as we know, every translation is an interpretation. And most of my life, I've heard men preach stories of women. Mm -hmm. And so I have this resistance because it has been men telling me the story. Luke, as well as male pastors. I have only heard one woman at a women's retreat teach about Mary and Martha. And my goodness, did she double down on the be Mary, don't be Martha. And so then my, even my body, before I even had words, this was pre-seminary. Even my body resisted it, and I didn't know why. Thankfully, other people have done the job of looking deeper into the text. And so this is why I think it's important to see how do Mary and Martha fit in the rest of the female disciples? Well, they are disciples. Mm -hmm. How do they fit with the rest of the story? Well, they are part of a posse that's traveling with Jesus, possibly 70, as you say, Mm -hmm. in the previous chapters. And how does this story sit in the rest of the chapter and in the rest of the canon? And so if this posse of women is revolutionary for Jesus to be traveling with a co-ed group, God forbid women were traveling with men, then of course we're going to feel the tension of the female disciples. They're going to feel the tension of the gender role that's Mm -hmm. been assigned to them. Mm -hmm. Though I want to brush it away, the author and even Jesus wants us to feel that tension because they are now leaders Jesus has welcomed them. And who is serving the food? It's not the male disciples. Right. So I want us to see them as leaders, not just as women. Mary the disciple and Martha the disciple. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think Jesus is saying, be this or be that. I think he's saying, yes, and. Mm -hmm. Yes, you can diaconia. Yes, you can serve. And yes, you can also be part of my posse. Yes, you can be my disciple in spite of being a woman. 
And so we see that tension that both of them are feeling the burden of what society has imposed on them. Mm-hmm. And now Jesus has invited them to something that they've never experienced before because no man has ever respected them as much. Right. And so, yeah, we feel the Mary and Martha situation, but that's a social construct. And we have to feel it. We were just talking about it before we started the podcast. We were having coffee and pumpkin pie together. <laughs> and you and I were saying, remember what we were saying? We can't get an A at everything. Yes. We can't yeah. get an A at being a mom, at being a wife, at being a friend. But you we were saying as a really podcaster, <laughs> we're leaders. We both really want to. Right. So whether we... <laughs> have a bias towards Mary being the busybody, you and I feel that tension at all right. times. Yeah, We feel the Mary-Martha hybrid yeah. of wanting to do it all. And I think Jesus is saying, yes, and. Yes, you can do all of this, but you can't do it all, and you can't do it all well. And I think him focusing on Martha's feelings about it. That's key. That was so, so clever and genius what you said. Tell us more about that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this podcast is this. Tell us more about that. Repeat it again well, because it's I, important. So, so many of the commentaries I read where Jesus didn't think she needed to make so much food. Mm-hmm. Only one dish mm-hmm. is required. Mm-hmm. I thought that is so... That's so petty. Petty. Great it's so word. petty. Jesus doesn't care how many yeah. dishes she makes. And his reflection to her is you're worried and distracted by yeah. many things. Yes. He calls mm-hmm. her by name and points out mm-hmm. how she's feeling, mm-hmm. which means she could make how many ever dishes she wants. Yeah. Or if she wasn't serving food at all, if she was serving the poor or doing yeah. ministry, whatever she was doing, he wasn't criticizing yeah. what she was doing doing that's right i think it was he was seeing yes the state of her heart and was saying yes come on and have a seat let's talk about the state of your heart that's how i see it this is genius this is so beautiful marm this is why we need women reading the story of women because in all my years of seminary no one has ever noted that like you that jesus was being compassionate and gentle at how she felt about the task at hand right And I I had to slow down and look at the text to be sure that I had read the right story. (laughs) (laughs) But this is very consistent to the character of Jesus. The Jesus who says to Mary at the tomb, woman, why are you weeping? Right. It's the same Jesus who is kind enough to slow down and say, man, Martha, I see that you're running around doing all these tasks. And he cares about how she feels about those tasks. And no man has ever taught me that. And so I wonder if what Jesus was doing was saying, hey, it's okay to name that you're worried. And I see that you're worried. Like you just said, he sees the emotion, he names the emotion, and he normalizes the emotion of feeling worried, trying to be of service, Right. right? And I find that more interesting than the task that she thought was expected of her at the moment. And then also translation is important. So mm-hmm. I'm going to read a post. My internet friend, Irene Cho, is quoting Amy Quartz, who has done a lot of work in the Greek on this particular passage. And I'm just going to read her translation. As they went on their way, Jesus, he came to a village where a woman named Martha received him. She had a sister named Mary, who also was one who sat at the Lord's feet, always listening to his words. The word also gets taken yes. out. Yes. Of the translation, Martha is receiving Jesus, but both she and Mary are those disciples. Mary and Martha are learners at the feet of Jesus. And it's not that literal 
Martha was in the kitchen and Mary is at his feet. Right. It's more of a metaphorical, like, no, they are sitting under his teaching, like they're going around traveling with Jesus, learning how to be disciples. Right. That is important. That changes the story. It does. Both of them are doing the yes and. They're mm-hmm. going around serving, and yes, they're going around being disciples, and yes, they're going around learning, and yes, they're going around learning how to be leaders. Right. And just like the male disciples, they get to make mistakes. Yep. Peter messes up all the time. All the time. James and John are the ones who are like, hey, we want to sit at your right hand in heaven. Thomas doubts, even though he sees Jesus right in front of him. Thomas doubts as though that's a bad thing. Peter denies. You could read that as a mistake that they're making. The disciples get to not understand Jesus all the time. So I think if Martha has something off about the way she's serving, then that's okay. Because all of the disciples get to have something off as they're learning to be disciples. They're all unlearning their gender Uh, roles. And they're all unlearning a way of life that they didn't know how to act around women. I don't know if you've seen the movie Mary Magdalene. It's a movie that was banned in the United States for about a year. I know there's a lot of movies about Mary Magdalene, but it's the one with Joaquin Phoenix as the, okay. <laughs> as, as Jesus. Okay, they have not paid me to talk about this, but I love that movie because it is a different interpretation on Mary Magdalene. Uh. And so they show the 12 disciples and Mary Magdalene is included in those 12 and what it could have been like to be the only woman in mm. a man's world. Yeah. The only leader and female leader in a male leader world. I encourage you and your listeners to go watch it. You're going to cry in some of those scenes where she's baptizing other women because Mm. probably the men could not baptize women. Because back in the day, sister friend, they used to baptize people in the nude. And so, and so, (laughs) or with like a (laughs) clear sheer cover, you know. And so Jesus may have needed women to do that baptism because it was such a vulnerable step. Right. But back to Maria Magdalena and uh, Joaquin Phoenix, who was Jesus, they're all unlearning. They don't know how to do life away from Jewish way of life, specifically religious ways of life. They didn't know how to be around each other. Jesus is doing something radical, something inclusionary, something that's never been seen before. And it is revolutionary. I love that you're humanizing the women and the men. Of course, they're going to make mistakes. Of course, they're going to not know how to behave around each other because they're having to unlearn to watch Jesus and to relearn a new way. Right. That's a disorienting time. One thing I think is cool that I see Luke doing in the chapter is the 70 Mm -hmm. are successful Mm -hmm. in their journey from house to house. They're excited because they've healed people and they've cast out demons and they're overjoyed. And Jesus is like, yeah, it's awesome. Way mm-hmm. to go. But be excited, not about this, your success, but be excited that your names are written in heaven. Mm-hmm. That's what he teaches them. And so for them to be foils with Martha, yeah. who is not succeeding in her own yeah. mind, and Jesus again to be saying, hey, Don't get hung up on your success or not, but be excited that your name is written in heaven. I love that. There's two things I want to say in the original text where the 70 started following. It's possible that they were sent in pairs of male and female. The word is a gendered word, like in parejas, a male and a female. And so even that, 
See, it's not explicit in the English text、mm-hmm. that there might have been co-ed pairs. Our idea of who might have been those seventy disciples in my mind, it was an、right. equitable group. Probably, we've been told it might have been male-centered only. So that's the first thing. I believe those seventy were very diverse, male, female. The second thing I love that Jesus is saying, "I'd rather you be present, and your presence is more important than your performance."、Mm-hmm. He's saying it ain't about your performance. It is not about how much you serve in your、right. socially constructed gender role. It is not about how many years you spent with me or how much you have done. He was picking fishermen, right? Fishermen. They were unschooled. That's a question of ethics as well. What was Jesus doing? All his verbs are ethical and they're intentional, and he、yeah. knows what he is doing. He is turning the empire upside down. This world is about power and power grasping and money and fame. And back then, we know that the emperor was seen as equal to God, and he is saying, "My kingdom works differently." He is discipling them into. A humble kingdom, and he is breaking down their need to produce. He's、right. just like, just be with me, just be with me, because people will notice if you have been with me. And there is a verse that says people notice that they were unschooled men, but they knew that they had been with Jesus.、Mm-hmm. So he was leveling the ground for the women too. So tell me what you think about the lawyer. I know that story a little bit better than the Mary Martha story because my body resists <laughs> the Martha situation. I love the story of I call it the New Samaritan,、okay. the story、oh, of the、like、New Samaritan,、like、and in the story of the New Samaritan, that lawyer is kind of cocky. He thinks he can put Jesus on trial, and that's where the story of the New Samaritan I think comes in. We've all been taught that the Good Samaritan. Should be us. Jesus intentionally centers a Samaritan. He is centering a person of color.、Mm. He is centering someone of a different ethnic identity.、Mm-hmm. He is centering the margins in that story within a story、right. in a very intentional manner. The new Samaritan, I think, is actually Jesus,、mm. because the thieves who came and left the man for dead. How many people groups have been left for dead? Have、right. been massacred? Have been robbed? Lands taken? Their languages taken? Put in detention centers, concentration camps,、mm-hmm. boarding schools throughout the centuries? And so, look at what Jesus is doing ethically, and then you superimpose it with our stories,、mm-hmm. the world in front of the text, and then it says that Jesus picks up the man. Bandages his wounds, puts oil on the wounds, and cares for him. Takes him to an innkeeper, and says, "Here's some money.、Yep. Take care of him until I come back and check on him." Those acts of compassion come from the greater Samaritan, that is Jesus.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. He is the only one that can bandage your wounds. He is the only one that brings salvation and liberation to whole entire peoples.、Mm-hmm. He is also talking to a people who have been deported. Who have had multiple deportations in their history?、Mm-hmm. He knows very well that these people know suffering, but also in the story of Israel, when they get a little bit of power, they also oppress.、Mm-hmm. So nobody in the story can stand on moral ground、right. except Jesus. We have to excavate that out of the story. And so this is why I say that the New Samaritan is Jesus. Maybe we are the innkeeper. 
Maybe we're the ones that have been invited to, uh, to, to care for him. Jesus has given back. us compassion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the word that is used there, mm-hmm. as you said, is not used very much throughout the New Testament. Yeah. And it's the same word that it says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion over right. them. That word compassion is is the same word used here. The only well of compassion, of this type of compassion, right. ain't no person who can embody that except Jesus. Yeah, And he shows us how to act like we got some mercy. But the metaphor and the the example that he's giving is a person of color for that context. And that's radical. He's identifying with the scapegoat, which is what he ultimately comes to do. Make me the scapegoat so you can stop scapegoating everybody else. Yes, and it's sneaky. Yeah. It is radical and it, it is revolutionary. The reading I was most familiar with is we are called to be the Samaritan. And then reading Dr. Martin Luther King's speech, actually listening to it. Yeah. Everyone should listen because I cannot do justice to right. <laughs> the, way, <laughs> the way he preached and the message that he gave. His preaching, just same story, same reading, love your neighbor in a way that is costly, that is right. dangerous, yeah. that wakes you up. It does wake um, you up. And also makes me feel completely incapable ultimately, of that kind of true love for neighbor. Yes. I didn't even know how to speak about it. How do I honor this in a way that does justice to the kind of love that he's calling all of us to, but also owns up to my own complicitness in not living up to that? Honestly, the current state of our country and the current state of the white church in Mm -hmm. America, we are all falling short. I really struggled to know how to communicate that and wanted to welcome you to join me in that conversation. I love that. And I thank you for bringing it in. And this is why I think I know the story a little bit better, because I've read Dr. Martin Luther King. I've read... Asian American theologians as well, who looked to the story for centuries, have looked into the story and looked at the ethical implications of the story. And there's a quote by the Reverend Julianne de Chassier, who says, privilege is the ability to walk away. Mm-hmm. And I like to add to that and remain unaffected. And so we look at the power dynamics in the story, religious or cultural, to see who has privilege and who has less privilege or none at all. I love that the communal reading of the scripture begs you to ask the question, what will happen to him if I don't stop? I think you asked that question, well, you know, Dr. and you King asked it was that. Dr. That's right. You were quoting Dr. <laughs> King who says, what will happen to him if I don't stop? Yeah. That's a communal question versus the individual question that you were quoting that he said, that, if I do yeah. stop, what will happen to me? And so a communal reading of scripture invites you to self-implicate in the violence, and that includes any one of us, Mm -hmm. truly. If it comes out of the mouth of Dr. Martin Luther King, then we know that he is specifically speaking of this context and and the civil rights movement in a very particular time and space. However, the ethics behind that question applies to every other people group as well Mm -hmm. who has been oppressed. When Dr. Martin Luther King wrote Letter from Birmingham Jail, I always say that the first four words of that letter are the most important. He says, dear fellow clergymen. Mm. And he's writing to his white brothers and sisters who were moderates. And he was saying, if you are silent, you are complicit. Mm -hmm. If your silence is violence. I used that letter for a final paper. 
and I exegeted it. I analyzed it as if it was an epistle. And it's fascinating mm. to do that with letter from Birmingham jail. I studied it as if it was an epistle in the Bible and I situated it in history. So when he says, dear fellow clergymen, and he's writing it from jail, he is not from a point of privilege. Right. He is the man in the ditch in the story. Mm. And y'all are just walking away because you have the privilege to walk away and remain unaffected. And he is saying, some of y'all are criticizing, saying that I've come here to Birmingham to cause chaos. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) And they're telling him that that he just needs to wait, that he just needs to wait. It is a cowardly call to wait. Everyone should read Letter from Birmingham Jail because it'll get your heart pumping. Right. Yeah. He's saying, how can you tell me to wait? How much longer must I wait when I see that the eyes of my children are downcast? When I remind them that we can't go to that diner, that we can't go to this store, that we can't eat at this place, that they have to use a different water fountain. What it's doing to the identity and sense of belonging and sense of worth of our black sisters and brothers at the time and other people of color who were also oppressed. He is saying, I don't have that luxury anymore and no more. We're not waiting anymore because oppression has to be disrupted. The story of the New Samaritan, just like the letter from Birmingham jail, is an indictment to religious leaders at the time. Mm. To the priest and to the Levite, as much as the fellow clergymen that Dr. King was writing to. Mm -hmm. His white, moderate sisters and brothers who were just afraid of disrupting the status quo, which is the same thing that chief priests and scribes in, in Jesus's time would do. They just cozied up to Rome. They just cozied up and they were afraid to disrupt the status quo. Yeah. And the story of the New Samaritan and the story of the letter from Birmingham jail are indictments to specifically church leaders mm-hmm. who have power to change the narrative and change the story. And they're choosing not to because privilege allows you to walk away and remain unaffected. Right. I've done enough work to know that I need to do more work with my own issues with race and ethnicity. I've read enough things to know that I need to keep going Mm -hmm. and not enough things to know how to call people to come along with me Mm -hmm. to try to say, hey, this is what I'm seeing in these stories without knowing how to say it with my own voice at the same time. To understand the right level of compassion, to know, hey, we've Mm -hmm. all grown up in our own settings and Mm -hmm. none of us is alone Mm -hmm. in the ways we need to grow. Mm -hmm. But also, who cares about your discomfort when there are people who are being murdered Mm -hmm. or detained? Mm -hmm. Thank you for your vulnerability, because we all have to self-implicate in the violence and then also have so much compassion to the ways that we are unlearning how we've been socialized culturally conditioned, racialized from before the time that we were born all the way up to now. And so perhaps we have even more compassion on the teacher in this story and say he's asking questions that make him really uncomfortable. He doesn't Mm. like the answers. We must be compassionate with him because he's undergoing an unlearning and a relearning. And Mm -hmm. that's called discipleship. And Peter, who was very prejudiced, had to undergo that when he went to Cornelius's house. Right. When he said, now, you know, I ain't supposed to be eating with you, right? Like, you know, I'm not supposed to be sharing utensils. You know, you and I don't drink from the same water fountains. That's the words that came out of the mouth of Peter, the apostle. So if he had some work to do, then we have some work to do as well. And we have to have compassion to see how Jesus' gospel has come to liberate us as well. 
He has come to give us salvation and also social transformation. Mm -hmm. And that's part of discipleship. We all have work to do. I always say that my white siblings have work to do Mm -hmm. because they've been given advantage and privilege that's been assigned to them. But also people of color like me, I have work to do too. There's ways that we have internalized oppression and there's ways that we have internalized superiority on on all groups. Mm. And so whiteness is a system that has affected and infected all of us. And that has to be unlearned and the work has to be undone and we have to be transformed to something new. And that happens in community. That cannot happen in isolation. Reconciliation doesn't happen in isolation. It takes the teacher of the law to be in the room. It takes the priest to be in the room. It takes the Samaritan to be in the room. It takes Jesus especially to be, it takes the innkeeper to be in the room. And the constellation of voices that can voice the oppression and also the Jesus that can voice the liberation Mm -hmm. that shows, hey, in my kingdom, women are welcome. In my kingdom, Peter's going to go to Cornelius' house and they're going to eat together and they're going to drink from the same water fountains and they're going to share the utensils. And so the question is, what is the work at hand right now? What is the work now? And it begins where you are, in your home, as a mom, in the soccer field, in your podcast, you choose who you're going to have in your podcast. Right. You choose what you're going to talk about. So in the places where you have influence, there you have power. And all of us have a place that where the work is, and the work is where we are. The work may be huge, and we can't change everything, but we can choose as we are on our way. We will be given plenty of opportunities to act justly, to right. love mercy, and to act like we know Jesus. So... It's a clarion call for all of us. The work may look different for all of us, and that's okay, but it must be done in community. So, friends, remember when I mentioned technical difficulties earlier? This is where that happened. It stopped recording us in the middle of our conversation, which stinks, but I think we got some good stuff here, and I hope you agree. So now I need to say goodbye on Inez's behalf and tell you that you can follow her on Instagram at Inez McBride. That's I-N-E-S-M-C-B-R-Y-D-E. You can also follow her at The Church We Hope For. That's our church's Instagram account. So go check those places out. Also, I want you to know that she has just submitted a proposal for a book about liberation from the eyes of the Canaanite mother in Matthew 15 and from the experience and life of a Nicaraguan pastora. So Inez, good luck with that. So exciting. I want to extend the invitation to come talk with us after it's out. So thank you, Inez, for being here and talking with us today. next set of episodes, I guess I'm in the retrospective mood here in the new year because we're going to revisit our first three seasons with one episode each. These stories continue to rattle in my brain and I continue to learn new things. And when I come across new information or new thoughts, ah, I want to talk with you about it. And so I'm gonna. <laughs> so If you have not listened to that first season or the second season, go ahead and do that because that will make you ready for kind of the, it's not a recap, it's like an addendum. It's an addendum. It'll make you ready for one addendum per season. (laughs) Please make sure you have followed this podcast wherever you are listening. 
Go ahead and check me out on social media at M-A-R-E-N dot J-O dot S-C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R. You'll find me on Facebook or Instagram. Thanks so much to the patrons. Oh, I'm so glad to be back at this. I hope everyone is ready to hit that new year. <laughs> Take everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.